The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, many people now say we're in the third wave of COVID, but how worried should we be? Plus, what will the mood be like as Boris and Biden meet each other for the first time? And finally, are UFOs now no longer a laughing matter? First up, many experts say we are now truly in the grips of a third wave. But what does that mean for our near future? In our cover story for the magazine this week, mathematician Philip Thomas writes about his work trying to predict the fallout from the speed of the Delta variant. He joins me now along with Associate Professor in Cellular Microbiology at Reading University, Simon Clark. Philip, in your piece for the magazine this week, you start by saying that the third wave is here, but that we shouldn't delay our reopening. Can you start by outlining your argument for listeners? Yes, indeed. I've been tracking the R rate for the last, for the best part of the last last year, and I've seen it go up and I've seen it go down. When we started to come out of lockdown for the uh, final time, what I noticed was that it started rising when we came out of step two. That's the retail opening up, non-essential so-called retail opening up. Uh, on uh, the 12th of April, it started rising at that stage, and it has continued rising. And it got a bit of a fillip when we moved into step three, the pubs and, and restaurants opening, and it continued to rise and went into the critical region above one then, and it has continued rising for the last 14 or so days. Now, it's now at a very high value. It's now higher than it was last December, January. And we're also starting to see uh, the number of cases rising, both the cases, new cases, new daily cases, and and also the active infections in the community, which have now uh, risen above 85,000 from having a low of around about 50,000. So, yes, we are in the third wave. And seeing this happening, the obvious thing uh, for me to do was to look ahead and see what is likely to happen. Uh, I have a model which, uh, which is called the, uh, the Predictor-Corrector Coronavirus Filter, PCCF for short. And when I actually ran that in look-ahead mode, then it was pretty clear that this would continue and we will continue to see a rise in active infections and that we would actually see a very, very large number, more than we saw in the dark days of uh, late December and up to mid-January. We were actually going to see a peak that was actually higher, maybe twice as high, maybe more. So that's the, the unsettling news. However, my model will also look at the number of deaths caused and the factors in vaccination and also recovery from infections. 
And when that's factored in, uh, what we find is that the death rate is nowhere near what it was in January. And the cumulative total, this third wave will go on, and it's set to go on in, in July and August. But uh, if things turn out as I have predicted, or rather as my model has predicted, we are going to see about 7,000 is the sort of central number of deaths from this. About half of those will be in over 80s. Uh, but the main people affected by the new uh, outbreak are going to be those who are not vaccinated, who are going to be those in their 40s or, or younger. I guess that's the sort of good news. And the other interesting thing is that there's not a lot uh, we can do about it. Uh, if we continue as we are, we will still see a huge surge in cases uh, and not a great deal of difference. But the good thing, I guess, is if the Indian or Delta variant is actually 50% more infective, which is what I have assumed, infectious, we will see these numbers. If it turns out to be doubly infective, then we will not see a huge difference. Basically, because it's so infectious, it's going to get into almost everywhere, and most people are going to be infected, and you can't infect people you know, more than they are infected. So it is almost irrelevant what decision is taken on the 14th of June. Simon Phillip says in his piece that we're as ready as we'll ever be for the third wave, given the vaccine rollout. Do, do you agree with that? I think we're in danger of investing too much in uh, in what the, the vaccine can do. What, what leaves me scratching my head is that although we've got the best vaccine rollout in Europe, um, we've got the most infections with the Delta variant. Now, why is that? Because it's everywhere, this variant. What, what is special about infection in the United Kingdom? What are we doing wrong in that respect? So that's first thing we need to, to consider. Getting herd immunity. I'm hearing all sorts of things about herd immunity being imminent and I think often without taking into account that those numbers need to include vaccination of children. It's the entire population, uh, not just the adult population. And really I think we need to consider also what uh, just leaving this and letting it run its course would actually mean. What would that actually look like? Uh, we have to bear in mind, I think, also that, that uh, lockdowns, which are going to be called for, whether you like them or not, and I don't, actually suppress the number of deaths. And, well, probably not. They don't get rid of the virus. I, I know you, you say that at the top of, of your piece, Philip. Uh, it's quite right. I was getting a lot of flack um, about that over a year ago. I mean, it's obvious germ theory. And, and really, we need to remember that lockdowns, are there to allow the NHS to somehow cope, to allow our healthcare facility to cope. And it's the same in other countries. It is flattening the curve. It is uh, squashing the sombrero or whatever it is. Uh, it's slowing down the spread of the virus, uh, not eliminating it in its entirety. And uh, if you know, we, we spend the summer just letting it run its course then um, we're going to be in trouble. It's not going to go away that quickly. So given that, what would you like the Prime Minister to say on Monday when we when we hear more about the 21st of June? I think he needs to have a, a long, hard look at the numbers that are predicted for him. He needs to take uh, evidence from all sorts of people. 
and it's therefore up to him to come to the conclusion of what's best to do next um, and what they're going to try to do. If they're going to try to, if they're going to lock things down, they need to level with people that it will pop back up again. But if they're not, then they need to understand that there will be uh, lots of people in hospital who, while they might not die, they're going to take up a lot of bed space. They are going to take up space in intensive care as well. And that means that if you're one of the people who didn't get your cancer treatment last time round, or just an operation that uh, that you need, or if you have a smash on the motorway or a, a heart attack, the bed space for you in the hospital isn't going to be there. And that we have to remember, I think, is why we had the lockdowns in the first place. It was that that was the, the curve that needed to be uh, brought down. So I think really, whatever he decides to do, he's got to level with us and tell us what it is going to do and what it's not going to do. But, but you could go either way on this. I think uh, Simon's raised two questions there. Uh, the first one is what are we doing wrong, uh, which is a, which is a big question, and I, I don't think that I'm in a position to answer that question, Simon. No, I don't think anybody uh, is. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, on the on herd immunity, uh, the, the modelling doesn't assume that we're that close to uh, full herd immunity. I mean, herd immunity for the sort of numbers, for, for the highly infectious variant, may be of the order of 85%. Uh, my calculations uh, suggest that we are currently uh, perhaps in the region of mid-60s percent. With, there are a lot of people who have got antibodies. Uh, the last uh, ONS survey suggested 76% uh, had antibodies, and we should be getting an update fairly soon. And my, my projection, which, is, which matches, the, matches the trajectory pretty well of the ONS curve, is that we're currently have something like 82% having antibodies. So there will be a lot of people with some sort of defense against, against the virus. And that, I think, is going to feed through into, is part of the reason why we are not likely uh, to get so many deaths. The other reason is that it is amongst the young, and the young are inherently less vulnerable to fatal disease from, from this, uh, as, as we know. Simon, just finally... At- at some point, presumably, we will have to have this exit wave, and and would it not be better to do it or to sort of to sort of have it happen during the summer months when hospitals aren't under as much pressure? Uh, yes, that's entirely possible, and I want to come back on this this herd immunity stuff. It's the uh, immunity and the the antibodies to the Indian variant that are important, and we do not know at all what the correlates of protection are for any of these variants. So if we take however many percentage of people have uh, uh, antibodies to the virus, regardless of what um, what variant it is, that leaves us with none the wiser. We don't know what the protection from so many percentage people having having antibodies. It's essentially meaningless. And when we've got a vaccine, the one that's being used most frequently that has... um, a protection, it seems, against the Indian variant of 60-something percent when you've had uh, both uh, both shots of it. I don't see how we can ever achieve herd immunity with that. I just don't think it's possible. Well, I, th- I think we have uh, strong indications that the, the vaccines are very effective if you have two doses of the of the vaccines, but that very effective may mean the sort of figures you're talking about. Yes, it does. But uh, that's against symptomatic illness, 
whereas the death is a, is a different thing. So I think that that's that's really uh, the, uh, the the chance of, of actually dying. And we've got the evidence from Bolton that only a very small number of people who had received two, two jabs ended up in hospitals. But those numbers from Bolton are just too small. We have no indication of their, their risk factors, uh, anything like that, or their age, nothing. Uh, we keep being told this, given this sort of sunshine and smiles act from the Secretary of State. And he might be right. I hope he is, but he might not be. And that's what concerns me. Simon, just finally, if if we accept that the vaccines aren't 100% effective and we assume that we're not going to perpetually be in lockdown, do do we then need to accept that there are going to be some deaths when we eventually open up and perhaps we need to have a discussion about what we what we have what we sort of see as an acceptable number of deaths? Yeah, I think the the government needs to to level with us about what they regard as an acceptable number of deaths. It sounds like a horrible thing, but we've had this this act that uh, lockdowns can protect us. In, in their entirety and, and that's not true and uh, we do need to start having that conversation about what is an acceptable number of fatalities it'll be very difficult and politically um, very awkward but I don't really see that there's any other way out of it. I agree with Simon about the political awkwardness of it but I think the uh, the other thing to to realize is that it's by no means a costless strategy to stay locked down. And my earlier work has actually looked at the effect of uh, lockdowns uh, on GDP, and then the effect of GDP per head on life expectancy. And they are very strongly linked. And so the, the problem is that in order to save life on one hand, with a lockdown, or at least to preserve it for longer in in terms that both you and I, Simon, I think would agree on. We're not actually curing the problem. We are putting it back. We are ameliorating it. Agreed. But the the problem with that is that we are, from my calculations and and from evidence from uh, countries throughout the world, we are actually sacrificing life and lives later on. So it's that balance. And it's life versus life. Philip and Simon, thank you. Next up, as the G7 meets in Cornwall this week, Boris will finally be able to dazzle world leaders in the flesh rather than on Zoom. It will also be the first time the Prime Minister meets the US President Joe Biden. And so what can we expect? A strengthening of the special relationship? Or will things be a little frosty between Biden and the man once dubbed the British Trump? To speculate on this diplomatic debut, I'm joined by Spectator World Editor Freddie Gray, who's written about the G7 in this week's Spectator, and Chair of the Hamilton Society and Spokesperson for Republicans Overseas UK, Sarah Elliott. Freddie, in your piece this week, you say that Boris may have moved on from his embarrassing fling with Trump, as you put it, but do you think Biden has? Well, it's hard to tell. It's hard to know what's going on in Joe Biden's mind. I found it quite funny in the last few weeks. Actually, in fact, since the election, since it became clear that Joe Biden had won, Boris world, if you like, people around Boris, the cabinet and so on, uh, have been very keen to say repeatedly that actually they have a lot more in common with Biden than they ever did with Trump. Um, and that on climate change and the pandemic response and China and things, there's a lot of confluence. I think speaking to some people who know a little bit about Biden world, I've got the sense that Biden world doesn't really think that. 
They still think of Boris as this sort of Trumpy figure, populist, and he's associated with the world that they dislike. So there's a sort of mismatch in expectations about this meeting this week between Boris and Biden. Sarah, Freddie points out in his piece that the term the special relationship is one that Boris seems to consider quite needy. At the moment, how do Americans see the relationship between the UK and the US? I think it's one of those things that never changes with presidents or prime ministers. It's this underlying feeling that because of our shared history and values that we are our natural allies in the world, especially now with the rise of China, and that we will always be side by side. I think the Americans see it as much more friendlier than the Brits do, and we wear it more openly on our sleeve, as any Brit who's been to America has probably had rounds of beers bought for them by Americans. But I do think that it doesn't matter so much that Biden is president now, that the relationship will still be important. However, you know, it is about priorities and what will the Biden administration prioritize. It was very clear under Trump that it was the free trade agreement that would take precedence and that the Brits were not at the back of the queue, like Obama said, after Brexit. And, you know, what kind of sounds will Biden make on this point? You know, is it the EU because it's a bigger trading continent, you know, with the security concerns? Or is it, you know, still the Brits have gotten through Brexit pretty darn successfully, um, and especially with the vaccine rollout. So, you know, what will his attitude be? I think... The Brits will kindly forget or ignore the fact that he, you know, is friendly with Jerry Adams and hopefully Biden will move on from Brexit and focus on more current concerns. It's interesting that you mentioned the free trade agreement because I think I mean, that's, that doesn't seem to even be being discussed any longer, Fred, does it? Well, it's amazing, isn't it? The sort of diplomatic amnesia that happens with every change, that everything is just forgotten. And Sarah's, of course, completely right to say that the fundamentals don't change the UK and the US are going to be good allies uh, for the foreseeable future. But unfortunately, you know, hack journalists like me like to speculate about the relationships because it's fun and it's entertaining. And it is very funny always watching these British prime ministers do this sort of sucky-uppy ritual dance towards the leader of the free world. You know, we saw it with Blair, who did it to Clinton and then brilliantly pivoted to do it to Bush. We saw it with Cameron uh, sort of... uh, slobbering all over Obama quite often and Theresa May even though she told everyone anyone she could that she found Donald Trump disgusting to his face and certainly her administration to Trump's administration always tried to be as ingratiating as they possibly could Uh, and of course Boris has now done uh, might be doing a, a Blair times two and doing a sort of very acrobatic pivot from Trump to Biden it's worth remembering what Boris said about Trump when he was... I mean, he first he said some quite critical things before he won the election. And then he went on, as I say in my piece, he went on Fox News uh, to say that Trump was one of the great global brands penetrating the human consciousness, which is an extraordinary thing to say. And um, just quite funny that we forget all about that. So what do you think we're going to see Biden and Boris agree on at the G7? I think it's going to be a lot of focus on the environment and climate change and emission controls and that sort of thing. But we all have to, you know, face reality that, you know, China doesn't want to reduce any kind of carbon emissions until 2060. So, 
you know, I think it'll be a big like kumbaya kind of gathering. Everyone pats themselves on the back and make them feel like they're really being proactive and leaders on the environment. And so maybe that is a great way to warm relations with the new president is to talk about what you have in common and both feel very passionate about this issue. But is it actually going to produce results? There's a lot of skepticism on that. Freddie, do you think anything meaningful will come out of it? Well, I mean, there's a lot of this talk about the D10, the Democratic 10, or possibly Democratic 11 now, as a sort of enhanced alliance compared to the group of seven against China to sort of further isolate China or to begin to isolate China. Again, I think that a lot of that might be uh, a little bit kumbaya because, as Sarah says, in terms of actually doing things that would really upset China um, and the very difficult decisions that we're going to have to take, the West is going to have to take if it wants to deal with the threat of uh, uh, an expanding China, then I just can't see anybody being quite willing to do that, particularly not at this meeting, which is all about the photo ops, really. And he's then off to is it Brussels. He's then off to Brussels. He's off to Brussels and then Geneva, yeah. To, and he's to meet meeting Putin, Putin. The big showdown. And what do we think is going to happen there? Well, I find it very funny that Biden always insists that he told Putin that he has no soul. He said he looked into his eyes and told him he has no soul. And I just don't believe that. I don't think any sane person believes that that conversation <laughs> happened. But we are supposed to believe that he's, you know, he's really tough with Putin. But at the same time, you know, they've just uh, withdrawn the sanctions on the pipeline, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline between Germany and Russia, which is a thing that Putin wanted. It's what Angela Merkel wanted, more importantly, I think, for Biden. So I think there's a lot of rhetoric, and Biden is doing this too with, with Xi, Xi Jinping. He called him a thug and so on, and there's a lot of hot air, but not a lot of actual substantial strategic shifts. And finally, Sarah, Freddie paints this rather sort of frail portrait of Biden in his piece. Do you, I mean, do you think Biden is ready for a week of sort of public diplomacy and debate? Well, that will, this will definitely be a test. Apparently, he's taking lots of naps and he's preparing for it. And I bet he's getting all his good vitamins in. I'm not too sure, to be honest. Let's see if he can actually walk up the stairs or down the stairs on his own of a plane, you know. If that happens again, I mean, can you imagine if he falls down the stairs right before he meets Vladimir Putin? I mean, honestly, there is something going on there, and they're not being fully transparent with him. And, you know, we got Kamala Harris in the wings. That's that's very comforting. We can be sure that Putin will put banana skins or oil the steps. Yes. <laughs> To ensure an embarrassing senior <laughs> a, moment. A, a very slick red carpet yeah. <laughs> will be put out. So, I mean, it's one to watch. I, and what a dichotomy between him and Trump, you know, this big, robust, you know, yes, orange-tinted man coming, you know, at Europe or coming to Great Britain. And then you have this kind of frail 78-year-old. So, uh, you know, it, it's one to watch. Thank you, Freddie and Sarah. And finally, UFOs are no longer the joke they once were, with even Obama confirming the existence of unidentified aerial phenomena. In recent years, there have been more and more sightings caught on increasingly more sophisticated equipment. So, what are they? Are they hostile spy and drone equipment, or maybe even something from a little further afield? To discuss, I'm joined by the novelist Lawrence Osborne, who writes about these recent revelations for this week's Spectator, and Dr. Tim O'Brien, Professor of Astrophysics and Associate Director of Jodrell Bank Observatory. Lawrence, in The Spectator this week, you say that UFOs are no longer a joke. What seems to have changed? 
Well, I'm not a UFO believer, and I'm not a ufologist, and it's not one of my obsessions. Let's get that straight. I mean, I would ordinarily be a bit of a skeptic about this stuff, and haven't really. And of course, you know, we know that the UFO crowd is full of nutters and crackpots and new age babblers, and you know, and I can I could name names here. Um, and out of amusement for myself, I've been following some of these crackpots for years, like Stephen Greer, and you know people who project all their kind of utopian new age fantasies onto UFOs. And this has been going on, of course, for a very long time. But it seems that parallel to that, there's also been, you know, more serious observations of things that are not easy to explain. And I suppose um, I felt moved to write the piece because there's this congressional report that's coming out. And um, it's not just uh, people on the ground saying they don't know what these things are. It's the Pentagon saying that. And so if the Pentagon doesn't know what they are, I'm prepared to say that I don't either. It's a fairly simple call to make. But I think, um, you know, the Pentagon is being very careful about saying that it doesn't have any theories, it doesn't have any interpretations, it's not saying it's, you know, it's, it's basically passing what the possibilities are, starting with the most likely ones, which is that it's our covert technology or it's... Russians, the Chinese, blah de blah de blah And none of these explanations seem to be sticking, really. This is interesting. I, I, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't go further than saying that it's interesting. I don't know what to make of it. I think a lot of the people who are the more serious people on the ground, doing, like people like Luis Elizondo, who worked for the Pentagon for a long time, or Nick Pope or whatever, I think those people are just saying, well, we don't know. We don't, we, we don't, we're not saying little green men and, you know, all that stuff. We're just saying we don't know what these are. And if they're man-made and if they're from other powers, uh, in a way it's even worse. Well, it's not worse, but you know, it's equally something that's troubling. I mean, if, if the Chinese or the Russians are flying these things as probes or whatever, in, or drones inside American airspace, and F-18s can't catch them, that's a little concerning, <laughs> to put it mildly. Personally, I, I don't think the Chinese or the Russians have those capabilities. So we're left through Occam's razor with two rather odd uh, propositions. One is that it's covert American stuff, which is possible, I suppose, or it's, uh, you know, you know what. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I'll, I'll just say one thing, you know, one of them, some of these UFO sightings do turn out to be much more ambiguous than they're originally presented to be. For example, the JAL flight in 1986 flying over Alaska where this Japanese, you know, cargo plane saw this object come, coming near them and it was seen on the radar and it was confirmed on the radar and, and blah, blah, blah. And subsequently, no one really had much of an explanation. But it's true that stealth bombers were being tried out at that time. And, you know, people thought that perhaps it was, a, it was an early prototype of a stealth bomber that he had seen. And so, you know, the, what, 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 what people thought was a sensational sighting turned out to be covert American technology being tested in the skies. And you can also say that about SpaceX, I mean, all this Elon Musk stuff, which in the early days was producing very spectacular effects at night. And people were recording this on their iPhones and going, you know, man, look at that, you know, and it just turned out to be SpaceX. Um, so, you know, there are explanations that eventually turn out to be much more prosaic than we think. Tim, you are a professor of astrophysics. What do you make of these reports and sightings that Lawrence is talking about, and, and in particular the fact that it's the US military who seem to be kind of keeping track of them or, or spotting them, should we say? I mean, in a way, I think it's quite comforting that they are keeping track of these things. I mean, you know, I think that's a better thing to do than just um, 
than just dismissing them without thinking about what people might be seeing. People have reported UFOs for, for many years, of course. I mean, there was a big spike in them after the after the Second World War, around the time of the sort of height of the Cold War is when these things started becoming more apparent. And I suppose, you know, if you wanted to think of an explanation for them that wasn't as prosaic as lens flare or random random other features, astronomical events, whatever they might be, clouds, rocket launches, then, you know, the standard explanation was always that it was the military testing something secret. That was always one of the go-to things. I think what's interesting about this, from what I can see of these latest uh, reports, is the is that the US is saying that it's not our military, it's not our secret operations. Now, you know, we have to believe that that's true, if they're saying it, I suppose. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know. but the, but they're, lie, would they? <laughs> you know, they're, they're saying that's not our secret stuff. So so then you are left with the option that it's it's some sort of covert operations by some other country, if it's terrestrial, or it's one of the sort of standard things that we don't even know it's some fault with the, the video system or something. Uh, so some sort of unrelated feature or or indeed it's uh it's it's extraterrestrials i'm i'm a big fan of extraterrestrials <laughs> you know i would love us to discover extraterrestrial life i mean many astronomers uh, uh, spend their lives you know searching for evidence of extraterrestrial life and to find that it was just turning up on our doorsteps would be amazing, right? It would It'd be, be a quite lo- convenient, wouldn't it? If they were just flying around the atmosphere. Yeah, it would be. It would be a lo- lovely thing, really. And that's all, assuming that they're friendly. But uh, it would be a lovely thing for for us to find. But you know, I really struggle. We should well, clearly we shouldn't be jumping to that conclusion, first of all, because that's quite an extreme statement that would be a major major statement to make so you'd have to have very good evidence for it i don't see any evidence yet that these are extraterrestrials even if we don't know what what they are and if in fact if they were extraterrestrials the weird thing these people these these um these things would have had to travel a very long way probably from other stars and therefore would have very you know very advanced technology to do that and what would be seen, it seems almost seems like they'd be trolling us by coming all this way um, and keeping themselves not quite hidden. <laughs> so they're sort of like just at the limit of what we, you know, we see, these little fuzzy blobs. And it's like they'd be perfectly capable of keeping themselves hidden, I think, if they travelled that way. So are they deliberately just messing with us by sitting at the limits of what we can see? So I don't know. In, very interesting stuff, though. Lawrence, why, why do you think there's such a sort of romantic idea of extraterrestrials and, and and as a novelist does the idea appeal to you enormously because i think it's a well it's a, it's a basic science fiction trope isn't it and some of the greatest films of recent years you know arrival contact have have de- you know close encounter i mean obviously for human beings there's nothing bigger than the idea of making contact with a different i mean this is an elemental human there's nothing more powerful to the humans like and guess what? It will probably happen at some point. Let's put it like that. Over thousands of years, I mean, if we, we survive thousands of years, which is always unlikely, but say we did, what are the chances? I mean, who would, who would, who would, prepare, to bet, who would be prepared to bet that it would never happen? And, and the thing is that when or if it did happen, you can be assured that it would be infinitely weirder than anything that we can imagine. It will be really weird when it happens. 
It'll be really weird for everybody on Earth. It'll be really weird for rational, normal people who have a kind of normality bias. We all have a normality bias. I mean, in the sense that, um, you know, if you'd walked around the streets of New York in, uh, prior to 7-11, September 10th, as I did, and you had said to people, oh, you know, tomorrow morning the, the World Trade Center is going to be destroyed by three, people would just laugh at you. But of course, 12 hours later, they had a very different opinion. So you never know uh, what what this would what this would be like. If you um, someone uh, someone told this, I, I think Avi Loeb, you know, the astronaut, the physicist at Harvard, tells this story about he went to a conference and uh, about Oumuamua, this uh, this object that went through, which I'm sure Tim can tell us about more authoritatively than I can. But um, you know, someone he was at a conference and someone came up to him and said, you know, this Oumuamua object is so weird that it's really disturbing me, and I wish it didn't exist. And he said, well, if you're an astrophysicist, surely you would be delighted that it might exist and that you don't know what it is. I mean, surely you wouldn't just dismiss it before, before you could entertain all the possible theories. I'm not, I'm not um, endorsing Avi Loeb's interpretation of it, by the way, because I think I read his book and it seemed, you know, I said earlier about people projecting all the utopian stuff onto <laughs> I thought, man, Avi Loeb, you're doing exactly that. Um, <laughs> even I'm not a physicist, but I can tell when someone's doing that. It's like you're not, you're, you're, you know, there's, stick to evidence. Don't extrapolate your own moral stuff about human political stuff onto that. And this is where we are with, but, but this is the whole point about UFOs, isn't it? We are in, ineluctably drawn to do just that, which is why it's quite, uh, there's a beautiful and poetic side to it. If you look at the nuttier side of the UFO people, even though we call them nut, nutters and so on, I mean, they are nutters in some ways, but you can also look at it in a human way. I mean, you can also, you can look at these, often these very broken people who are kind of yearning for some kind of deeper meaning and they're looking upwards into the heavens in order to find it, as people always have. So it's not to be despised on a human level. I mean, I think you can despise the charlatans who are making money out of it. Um, but I think that you can understand why people project all their sort of fears and and disappointments and yearnings and so on onto these creatures that, um, you know, we don't even... I mean, it's amazing how ufologists have such a precise knowledge of what these aliens look like and the political systems they have. <laughs> you, think, you know, and I don't know if you know this guy, Stephen Greer, who's very big in the United States, um, and he has this um, app. You can see it on the Apple App Store. It's called CE5, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. And it's like this um, $9.99 and you download this app and it, and it comes with a, you know, you can buy a laser and you go out at night and these groups organize these meetings. They go out and they meditate in fields until these lights start shining in the sky and they film them. And then they claim that they're meditating and they're drawing in the extraterrestrials and, you know, and so on. And it's all deeply weird. I mean, but you, even though, of course, it's absurd. I must say, when I'm watching these videos, I'm sort of thinking, "Wow, I wish that was true." You know, <laughs> I wish you could. I wish I could sit in a field at night and these and these <laughs> beings kind of appear, because how beautiful that would be. I mean, if it was actually the case, when of course we know it's not the case. But I mean, you see what I mean? There's a sort of there's an imaginative element to it, which is very profound. It's very, very beautiful and very profound, and uh, I think we have to keep that alive in ourselves, not just you know, not just poo poo it. And Tim, just finally, through your work at the observatory, have, have you ever, whilst looking up into space, come across or seen something that you couldn't perhaps identify that sort of unnerved you or excited you? 
I mean, you know, we pick up signals all the time that we don't know what they are. Um, and, and, you know, we are involved in um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So we do, we have used our telescopes to uh, try and pick up any signals that might be being sent our way, radio signals by distant extraterrestrial civilizations. And, and the, the biggest challenge is always um, filtering out our own noise. So, you know, as humans on the planet, we create a huge amount of noise in various forms, radio signals in particular. Uh, and, and so if we pick up something that we don't recognise, that happens a lot. And, and it's basically nearly, it's basically always us. Very occasional, there'll be something that we can't pin down as being uh, definitely coming from locally and therefore potentially coming from farther away. But, you know, it's it's a serious, it's a serious search. And we do occasionally find something that, that, that is interesting and we look at it further and then we eventually there's some explanation for it. I mean, myself personally, I mean, I've never really seen anything. I mean, the closest, just a few years ago, I saw a, a very weird looking flashing light in the sky. Um, and, you know, even to me, it was weird. You know, I look up a lot at the sky at night and, um, you know, there's a lot of satellites that you'll see if you spend any time looking up at the sky. Um, you'll see a lot of these very faint satellites sweeping across the sky. Many more, sadly, now with the with the uh, things like the Starlink satellites from SpaceX and others. But uh, this thing was sort of flashing in some, you know, in some way that and it was incredibly bright when it when it flashed. It was really bright. And my interpretation of that, and I dug around and I think I worked out what it was, uh, is that it's a it's a tumbling satellite. So because these things are tumbling in orbit, they reflect sunlight down to the ground. And as they tumble, you get this, there's this sort of beam of light that sweeps past you on the ground. And so you see this flash. But for that few minutes while I was looking at that, then I definitely didn't know what it was. And I was definitely thinking, my goodness, what could that be? But of course, you know, I dug away at it. And there's a plausible explanation that didn't require me to claim that it was an extraterrestrial spacecraft. Although, as Lawrence says, I, you know, I would love it. I mean, I think it is a there's a deep human urge to understand whether we are alone or not, to find out the answer to that question. And as I say, there's any number of scientific projects in different ways that are aiming to answer that. And I really do think we should be looking, you know, we shouldn't just dismiss UFOs, whether it be for emotional reasons, for the people who, who, who say they, they've seen these things or think that they're extraterrestrials, but just for the practical reasons, there's something, we don't know what it is. Well, let's gather the evidence for what it is and let's try and do some scientific study of it Lawrence and Tim thank you very much for joining and that's everything this week if you've enjoyed it and want to know more about the stories we've touched on please do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive and of course please do also leave us a review and a star rating on whatever platform you're listening to I'm Laura Prendergast and I hope you have a brilliant weekend The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.